next. Yes, it's the lens through which someone views the world. Okay, how about M&Ms? Sound good? Okay, next one. What kinds of people have worldviews? Like, who has a worldview? Well, that's an example. That's an example of a worldview, but what kind of people in the world have a worldview? I'll give you another chance. Everyone. Okay, you have to share with her because she totally helped you out with that one. Okay, um, now somebody over here. Give me an example of one of the worldviews we talked about. Yeah. Atheist. That's good. You get Reese's for the atheist answer. All right. What other questions do I have here? What is a pantheist? Yes. Yes, and actually, she just said, a pantheist believes God is in everything. That's actually, I'm still going to give you the candy, but that's actually panentheism, which is closely related to pantheism, which means God is everything, okay? Good job. She's thinking. All right, uh, let's see. Last one. What is the worldview of the Star Wars movie franchise? Okay, you right there. Yes, good job. All right, give yourselves a hand. Good review. <laughs> All right, we're going to start tonight with this little video, and then we're going to get right into it. Das hier ist mein Sektor. Das hier ist das wichtigste Gerät des Küstenwächter. Das Gerät und das Gerät. Überlebensradar. Hello? This is the German Coast Guard. We are thinking, we're thinking. What are you thinking about? <laughs> so I think we would all agree that words matter, right? It matters what words we use. Because I can use one word and mean one thing, you could use the same word and mean something else, right? So it matters what words mean. And so we're going to talk about some examples of some words that people use, but they mean different things. So let me ask you guys, what does the word tolerance mean? Anybody? Just give it a shot. Okay. Okay, having to stand up for something or take it in. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, like what does it mean to tolerate somebody? I know, to tolerate someone means to tolerate. It's kind of like truth. What is truth? It's the truth. I know, it's hard. Anybody else? What does it mean? To, what does tolerance mean? Way in the back. To put it, it's exactly it. That's exactly what tolerance means. Traditionally, that's what tolerance means. Tolerance means by nature you disagree with something, Right? but you tolerate the person saying it. You respect their right to say it. So if I tolerate your opinion, I'm basically saying I disagree with what you're saying, but I respect your right to say it, and I would protect your right to say it. So that's the classical definition of the word tolerance. But the word tolerance has shifted in meaning in our culture, hasn't it? Because tolerance now, when people use that word, what they really mean is an acceptance and even celebration of 
someone else's view to where you're not actually allowed to disagree. So it actually means the opposite of what the word actually means. Because by nature, to tolerate something, you have to disagree with it or else the word tolerance would not be necessary. Are you guys tracking? Okay, another word that gets changed around in meeting is the word faith. Now, I want to ask you guys, what do you think faith is? Can anyone give me a definition of faith? Yeah. Okay, so to believe in something even though you may not know it exists, okay? To believe in something even though it seems impossible, and I'll take one more. To put your trust in something. All right, those are radically different definitions, right? Well, I'm going to tell you what this guy says. This is a guy named Richard Dawkins. Now, he is an uh, evolutionary biologist at Harvard, okay? And he's not very fond of Christians. He's an atheist, and he's, a, he's in a group called the New Atheists that they're writing a lot of books on the lay level, which means they're writing them for the every person that's easy to understand, trying to convert them to atheism. And so he defines faith this way, and he's talking about us, okay? He says this, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. Now, how many of you think he's got that definition right? Nobody? Couple people? Maybe, kind of? Believing in something even though there's no evidence and maybe even because there is no evidence? Is that what we mean by faith? What does the Bible say faith is? Anyone? Yeah. The substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. Does that mean that we don't have a reason for that faith or that trust? What is something that's unseen that even evolutionary biologist from Harvard, Richard Dawkins, would agree exists. Yeah. Oxygen. You can't see oxygen. Has anyone ever seen oxygen? No? How about you, you can? Heat. Ooh, that's a good one. Well, you can maybe see heat waves. But yeah, I get what you're saying. Yep. Gravity. Exactly. Yeah. Wind. Anybody else? What about love? Beauty, anger, energy. Ask a scientist one day what energy is. They don't know. They don't know what it is. Consciousness, they don't know what that is either. And yet, evolutionary biologists from Harvard, Richard Dawkins, would agree that oxygen exists, consciousness exists, beauty exists, these things we can't see exist. So it can't be that the Bible is saying we should believe something because of no evidence. In fact, biblical faith is quite the opposite. Let's look at an example from the New Testament. Okay, you all know the story of John the Baptist, right? So this guy is the first prophet in the New Testament. There's been 400 years of silence, and he's the prophet, and he proclaims the way of the Messiah. He baptizes Jesus, sees the Holy Spirit come down in the form of a dove, and hears the audible voice of the Father say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I mean, he witnesses that, but he calls Herod out that he shouldn't be married to the woman he's married to, and he throws him in jail. So now, this is before persecution is broken out against Christians, so they're not used to the idea that they're going to be in prison for this stuff, right? 
So John is sitting in prison, and he's going, what is going on? I thought, I thought this was it. I thought you were the Messiah, and now I'm sitting in prison. And John the Baptist, the man who saw the Holy Spirit come down in the form of a dove and heard the audible voice of God, doubted. He had a moment of profound and deep doubt in Jesus. So he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the one or should we wait for, an, are we looking for another? Is it you? And Jesus sends his disciples back and says, tell John to stop doubting. No, he didn't say that. I made that up. <laughs> he sends his disciples back and he says, John, you should just have faith. No, he didn't do that either. He sends John's disciples back and he says, you shouldn't question these things. No, he didn't do that either. Do you know what he did? He performed three miracles and he said, go back and tell John what you saw. Jesus gave John evidence for his faith. Another example. You all know the story of doubting Thomas, right? Did you know Thomas wasn't really a doubter? He was a skeptic. You would be too. He wasn't there when Jesus appeared to his 12 disciples, resurrected from the dead. I mean, they watched this guy die from afar because they all ran and fled. But he was in the tomb three days, and then they see him, and they go and tell Thomas, Thomas, we saw Jesus, he's alive. And Thomas, he wasn't like a doubter. He was like a rational person, right? And he's like, uh, no, I'm going to need to see that for myself. Well, what does Jesus do? He appears to Thomas and he says, Thomas, you shouldn't have doubted me. No, he didn't say that. He appeared to Thomas and he said, Thomas, you should just have faith on these things. You should have believed them. You would have been so much more blessed. No. What did Jesus do? He said, here, put your fingers in the holes in my hands. Put, feel here. You can see it's me. He offered Thomas evidence. He didn't shame him for, for questioning he didn't shame him for wondering what on earth was going on. And that's how Jesus is. He offers, there's tons of evidence all throughout the world in science. There's evidence in philosophy. There's evidence everywhere for the existence of God. Because if God is the explanation of reality, if God is true, then all of those disciplines are going to line up with it, right? They're all going to testify that that's true because that's reality. Remember we talked last week about reality you want your worldview to correspond with reality, whether you like it or not. Because what is it when somebody's worldview doesn't correspond with reality? It's called disorders. I mean, they, they have names for these things. Disorders when your worldview, the way you see the world, doesn't correspond with reality. So faith is not a blind leap. Faith is not just trusting whether or not we have evidence, as Richard Dawkins thinks. Faith is putting your trust in something that you have good reason to believe is true. This guy right here, he nailed it. It's, it's trust. Faith is trust. That's the biblical word that's used for faith. It actually means trust. It doesn't mean a blind leap off a cliff. And it's not unreasonable to make a conclusion based on evidence, even if you don't have hard proof at the end of the day. And I'm going to give you an example. When you all came in the room today, how many of you looked at your chair and you said, oh my goodness, I really don't know if this chair is going to hold me, but I'm going I'm to have faith, I'm going to muster up some faith, 
and I'm going to sit in it anyway. How many of you did that when you came in? Seriously? <laughs> That's awesome. I like you. That's cool. Okay, so only one person did that. But the reason the rest of you didn't do that is because you actually put faith in that chair. You put your trust in the fact that that chair would hold you. Now, you don't have hard proof for that. Has there ever been a chair collapse under a person ever in the history of the world? Of course, and I've heard it's happened here at this church, actually. <laughs> but yet, you all exercised faith or trust that the chair would hold you. Why did you do that? Because you have really good reason to believe that it would, because it's done it before, right? And that is coming to a conclusion based on good evidence and reason. And that's what we as Christians need to do as well, because as we mentioned last week, Christianity is the only religion the only religion that stands or falls based on an historical event being true or false. What's the event? The resurrection of Jesus. If the resurrection of Jesus is not real, if it didn't happen, then Christianity is false. And you might as well throw your Bible out the window and do whatever you want. Paul said, if Christ is not raised, your faith's in vain. You're still in your sins. Forget it. Do what you want. It's not true. If Christ has not been raised, Christianity is false. No other religion can say that. Every other religion is sort of based on some guy sitting under a tree, getting a revelation, getting some people to follow him. But Christianity is a rational faith. It's a reasonable faith. And I want us to start thinking that way. So faith is trust based on good reason and good evidence. Another word that gets redefined as times go along is the word science. So is science the explanation of all reality? Can it explain everything in the world? Well, this guy thinks it can. This is Bertrand Russell. This is a famous atheist. Now, guys, I need you all to put your philosophical thinking hats on tonight, because this one is a little bit of a brain bender, what we're going to do here. But I'm going to read you what he says, and we're going to analyze it, okay? He says, what science cannot tell us, mankind cannot know. Now, this is the predominant view of many to most scientists today. What science cannot tell us, mankind cannot know. Now, we're going to prove his statement false right now just by thinking, okay? <laughs> is that a statement of science? Did he prove that in a lab? Then it's not true, according to his belief. What science cannot tell us, mankind cannot know, therefore we cannot know if that's true. What he's talking about is a worldview called scientific materialism. And what that is is the belief that nothing exists except physical matter, its movements and its modifications. It's a worldview. It's an assumption because you can't prove it in a lab, right? So it's, it's a preconceived assumption about the world that cannot be proved. But nonetheless, it is the predominant worldview in the science world today. But hold on, this guy says not so fast. Not so fast. Now who's this guy? This is Peter Medawar. I found a funny picture of him on purpose. He's actually a serious guy. He's a Nobel Prize winning biologist. Now, Mr. Richard Dawkins before, as far as I know, I don't think he's won the Nobel Prize, but Peter, Meta Peter Medawar has won the Nobel Prize. And he says, that's not true, what Bertrand Russell said. Here's what he says. It's so easy to see the limits of science. 
It cannot answer the questions of a child. Where am I coming from? What is the meaning of life? Where am I going to? We need to go outside of science. So how did we get here, right? How did we get to a culture where most of the scientists, at least in the secular world, hold the philosophical worldview of scientific materialism? Well, let's take a little look at history. So prior to the 17th and 18th century, most scientists viewed the universe as an open box. Okay, so they, they looked at the universe as we're going we're gonna to follow the evidence wherever it leads, and if it leads outside of the universe, we're going to go there, right? So the universe was like an open box. But then something happened. It was a philosophical movement called the Age of Reason, okay, in 17th, 18th century. And it was basically a reaction to a lot of the kind of more hyper-mysticism that was dominating in the... Um, the Middle Ages, you know, sometimes those are called the Dark Ages. I would argue with that because I think there was a lot of brilliant uh, theology and philosophy that was coming out of that time. But it did kind of get heavy, mystical. And so these guys are like, wait a second, we've got to get back to what we can see, taste, touch, smell, and hear. And we're not going outside of that. I mean, a lot happened more than that. But there was a rise. This is where agnosticism came from. This is what eventually inspired Charles, Charles Darwin in his work was the age of reason. And so after the 17th to 18th century and to today, scientists began to see the universe as a closed box. So you, you, you can't go outside of the universe if the evidence starts leading there because it doesn't exist. We're just gonna presuppose that nothing outside of the universe exists and we're only gonna do our science inside the box. Well, to me, I think good science is following the evidence where it leads, right? And not stopping because you don't want to go somewhere. Think of it like a car, okay? Let's say you've got a, a Model T. How many of you know what a Model T is? It's like the first, isn't that the first car? First mass-produced car. I should have looked that up before I said that. <laughs> but it was invented by Henry Ford, right? Okay, so let's say you've got this, this Model T. You have no idea where it came from, and you're like, oh, I want to figure everything out I can about this Model T. So you, you take it apart. You put it back together. You figure out how the motor works. You figure out how the steering wheel works and the wheels work, and you figure out how the whole thing works together. And you say, therefore, there's no such thing as Henry Ford. <laughs> I mean, it's really the same, right? Because you can figure out how things work inside of it doesn't mean that it just happened, right? You have to go outside the box. Isaac Newton, right? He knew that there was a God. This is the guy that discovered gravity. Einstein knew there was more than just matter. We don't know exactly Einstein's religious beliefs. Some say he was a deist, some say pantheist. Who knows? But but he did believe there was more than just matter. He believed in the possibility of God. So why am I telling you all of this? I'm telling you all of this because if you can remember one thing from tonight, just one thing, let it be what I'm about to say, all right? Science doesn't say anything. Scientists do, okay? I'm gonna say it again. Science doesn't say anything. Scientists 
do. Let's all say it together. Ready? Science doesn't say anything. Scientists do. Now think about it. What do scientists do? They gather evidence. They make a hypothesis. They, they gather the evidence. They, they compute. They think. They analyze the evidence. And then they come to a conclusion, right? Which is why you can have two different scientists with the same body of evidence come to two different conclusions. And why is that? Because they have to use philosophy to interpret the evidence. They have to use their minds. They have to analyze. They have to think. Science, if anybody ever says to you, science says, you say, science doesn't say anything. Scientists say things. Scientists say their conclusions that they've come to. And so we have to remember that. Because from different times in the history of the world, the general consensus of science was different things. There was a time in the world when the general consensus of science was that the earth was held up on the back of an elephant. Science doesn't say anything. Scientists do. Okay, so let's, let's keep that in mind. So tonight, we're going to talk through some scientific evidence for the existence of God. But if you have the preconceived worldview of scientific materialism, you will be at a dead end at the end of this evidence. But if you have an open mind and you follow the evidence where it leads, I think we're going to discover some pretty exciting stuff. So we're going to talk about an acronym. And if you're taking notes, this is a good time to take notes. The acronym is SURGE. We're going to talk about five different pieces of evidence, okay? And then we're going to analyze the evidence and come to a conclusion. So the first piece of evidence is the second law of thermodynamics. See, I'm not opening a Bible yet. I haven't even opened a Bible yet, you guys. So according to the second law of thermodynamics, it says a lot of things, but it basically says that the universe is running out of usable energy. So it's kind of like a car. Remember the Model T? So you put gas in the car. Eventually, the car is going to run out of gas. Well, the universe is not creating new energy. It had a certain amount, and it's running out. So therefore, we know, we're going to use our analyzers here, if the universe existed forever, we would run out of gas by now, right? If the universe didn't have a beginning point, then we would be out of usable energy by now. So that's really strong evidence that the universe had a beginning point. There is a... Uh, famous physicist named Stephen Hawking. How many of you guys know who this guy is? Everybody, pretty much. So he says this, all the evidence seems... Now, this guy, he's not a Christian. He's totally committed atheist. But he says, all the evidence seems to indicate that the universe has not existed forever, but that it had a beginning. The reason I tell you he's an atheist, because I don't want you to think I just went over to Answers in Genesis and got all my answers for tonight, right? I'm just saying, like, these are, these are not our people, okay? But he says that the universe has existed forever. And then he goes on to say, this is probably the most remarkable discovery of modern cosmology. In fact, the theory that the universe has existed forever is in serious difficulty with the second law of thermodynamics. It indicates that there must have been a beginning. Otherwise, the universe would be in a state of complete disorder by now. And I got that right off his blog. You can go on there and get it yourself. There's a Russian physicist named Alexander Vilenkin. He said, with the proof now in place, Cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There's no escape. They have to face the problem 
of a cosmic beginning. Now, why would he think that's a problem? Why would a cosmic beginning be a problem? Because that doesn't go with other laws of science. Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, why is there anything? That's the question, really. Why is there anything at all instead of nothing? Something to think about. Well, the beginning of the universe is a problem for scientists who hold to scientific materialism. And we're going to get into it in a minute. Why? But I'm going to give you a couple more pieces of evidence that the universe had a beginning. The universe is expanding. Okay, so at the Big Bang, now it doesn't matter how old you think the Earth is, the Big Bang, I'm going to tell you, I know we're Christians, we're not supposed to believe in the Big Bang, right? Well, I believe in the Big Bang, I just know who banged it, right? <laughs> the Big Bang is one of the strongest pieces of evidence for the existence of God. We should not be casting that off. So at the Big Bang, the universe exploded into existence out of nothing. So if we watched a video of the Big Bang from, from, from now, and we watched it in reverse all the way back, we would see it come to a singularity and then there would be nothing. Does that kind of make sense? Because the universe is expanding, you can just think about it in reverse. At some point, it's gonna all come back together and collapse back into nothing. Does that make sense? So if the universe wasn't expanding, you know, we might not have such strong evidence that there was a beginning point, but there has to be because it's going this way, okay? There's an agnostic. Who remembers what agnostic means? Anybody? Agnostic. Okay, it's someone who isn't sure about whether or not God exists, or some agnostics would say no one can know if God exists. There's kind of two different kinds of agnostics. So there's an agnostic uh, physicist named Arno Pensias, and he also won a Nobel Prize. Again, I'm not just going to some Christian website to get my information here. He won the Nobel Prize, uh, in, uh, and in 1978, he said this in the New York Times. Guys, this is amazing. He said, the best data we have, and he's talking about the Big Bang, are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. What on earth? Nobel Prize winner, agnostic, is saying that. See, scientists know that if the universe had a beginning, they have a big problem. They have a God problem. The next piece of evidence is radiation from the Big Bang. So Big Bang was kind of a theory in the beginning, but it got proven true when uh, that guy I just quoted, uh, Penzias and his partner, Robert Wilson, in 1965, they were looking through their telescope and they detected some strange um, radiation on the antenna in their lab. And so what the radiation turned out to be was one of the most significant discoveries of the last century. And what they discovered was light and heat that was left over from the Big Bang. And so that was sort of the, the proof that the Big Bang wasn't just a theory, it was actually reality, because they found the evidence for it. Now, this evidence was such a big deal that we're gonna, it's going to bring us to our next piece of evidence, which is great galaxy seeds. Now, what these are is, like, if you're not a science person, you know, it's, it's, I'm not really a science person myself, but basically NASA and all these other scientists, they knew that if what 
these two guys found, this radiation from the Big Bang, if what they found was what they thought it was, then there would be ripples, variations, just very slight variations in that, what they call the radiation afterglow. And so NASA spent $200 million sending a satellite up to, to see if this stuff was there. $200 million. And after three years, guess what? They found it. And they called them the great galaxy seeds. And so it was such an amazing discovery that George Smoot, who was the project leader, he said this, if you're religious, it's like looking at God. Stephen Hawking called that discovery the most important discovery of the century, if not all time. Again, not just going to some Christian website. These are secular, non-Christian scientists that are scratching their heads going, what do we do with this? In fact, the ripples that they found were so precise, so exact, that the project leader called them the machining marks from the creation of the universe. It was like looking at a picture of creation. He called them the fingerprints of the maker. He's not a Christian, but he's going, what is going on? We gotta figure out what this is. The last piece of evidence is Einstein's theory of general relativity, which really, really bugged him when he figured it out. In fact, it bugged him so much, he introduced like a fudge factor in his calculations that's, that a mathematician proved wrong later, and then Einstein had to admit he did that because he didn't like what he was discovering, which was leading toward the universe having a beginning. So Einstein's theory of general relativity demands an absolute beginning for time, space, and matter. And Edwin Hubble, you've all heard of the Hubble telescope? He confirmed Einstein's calculations by observing the red shift in light from every observable galaxy, which meant that galaxies were moving away from us, right? So the universe is expanding from a singular point in the past. Now, everything I've just told you is the general consensus of science. Atheists everywhere. This is it. This is what every site. Now, they're not going to agree with my conclusion, probably. But they will tell you they don't know because they're not really allowed to go outside that box, according to their own philosophy. So I'm going to quote another agnostic NASA scientist. This guy led, was a leading scientist at NASA for many years, Robert Jastrow. Again, agnostic, not a Christian. And he said this, astronomers now find... They have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth. And they have found that all of this happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover, that there are what I or anyone else would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. That's probably why he's not an atheist, but he's an agnostic. Because he's saying the supernatural is provable because of that. And he's saying, I don't know what it is, but it's there. Now, why do we know it's there? We kind of got into this a little bit last week with, remember atheist Amy that visited us? And for those of you who weren't here, it's just me with some glasses on, but... I like her, bring her in sometimes, but we talked about this. So there is a law called the law of causality, and it's a scientific law, and it says that everything that begins to exist 
has to have a cause. If something begins to exist, something had to cause it to exist. Now, if we know that the entire universe, that's all of time, space, and matter, exploded. Oh, I had a nice little picture of him. Oh, and that too. Yeah, he gets those too. Sorry. Okay, so the law of causality, everything that begins to exist has a cause. That's why the cosmic beginning is a problem for atheists. Because if it began to exist, it has to have a cause. Well, what's the cause? Well, it has to be something that's outside of time because it created time. Because if it was in time, then time would have already existed and then we're back to square one. It has to be something outside of time. It has to be outside of space because it created space. If it was in space, it couldn't have created space. Outside of time, outside of space. It has to be immaterial. That means not made of matter because it created matter out of nothing. If it was made of matter, matter would have already existed and it couldn't have created matter out of nothing because nothing was there. Has to be powerful to cause an entire universe to explode into existence out of nothing. And it would have to be personal because it would require decision making to create a universe that is so finely tuned. I wish we could do a whole night on fine tuning. Just all of the variables in the universe that are absolutely just right not just for any life to exist, but for us to be here. Have to be incredibly intelligent and personal. Okay, so I'm not gonna jump to any conclusions here, but has to be something that is outside of eternal, eternal, immaterial, spaceless, unimaginably powerful, and personal. Well, I don't know what you wanna call that, but I call that God. I mean, God is not a wizard in the sky with a, with a hat and a walking stick. He's not Gandalf, right? He is a timeless, spaceless, immaterial, and unimaginably powerful, personal, loving being that caused everything to explode into existence out of nothing. Now, the one comeback you're gonna get, if you ever share this with anybody, is someone's gonna say, fine. Well then, who created God? Well, what does the law of causality say? It doesn't say everything needs a cause. It says that which begins to exist needs a cause. If the universe was eternal, it doesn't need a cause. The universe would be God <laughs> if it was eternal, okay? God is eternal by definition that, it, that is, he doesn't have a cause, right? It's a category mistake where someone's trying to apply the same category to the wrong question. So God is outside of time. According to the law of causality, he doesn't need a cause because he's eternal. Are you guys tracking? So let's basically just, I'm gonna sum up what we talked about tonight with just a little video and then we have time for a few questions, okay? Sound good? All right. Does God exist? Or is the material universe all that is, or ever was, or ever will be? One approach to answering this question is the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe 
has a cause. Is the first premise true? Let's consider. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic, you've got a hat and a magician. And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But what about our second premise? Did the universe begin? Or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy. And that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of a finite universe, so it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence. But one by one, these models failed to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth and Alexander Vilenkin, prove that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even applies to the multiverse, if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape they have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible then that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused, and unimaginably powerful, much like God. The cosmological argument shows that, in fact, it is quite reasonable to believe that God does exist. Now, the cosmological argument, which is kind of what we talked about tonight, that's not going to get you to Jesus or the Trinity or some of the other things that we're going to get into in further weeks, but it can get you to the existence of God, which is interesting that the Bible says that everyone is without excuse because the heavens declare his glory. In Psalm 91, it says that, or is it 19? I don't have it off the top of my head, but the heavens declare. So 
That's why every, no one is without excuse because you can look into the world and know that at least some kind of a God that's really close to the God of the Bible exists without even opening a Bible. So we have any questions? Yes. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, I, yeah, I, I can't explain that one either. Like, he's saying, how do we comprehend that God is eternal? I, I, I don't know. That is, that is one of the head scratchers for all philosophers. I mean, that's, it's so hard to think about, you know? But if it's true in reality, whether or not we fully understand it, it's still true. You know what I'm saying? That's a great question. Did you all hear that question? She, okay, so she said, um, you know, you're saying that the universe was just there instantly, but the Bible says he created things over time. Well, if you go to your Bibles and read, Genesis 1-1 says what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Bang. So all the elements were there. And then in Hebrew, there's actually sort of, I, I've heard Hebrew scholars on this, that there is an indication, not, not definite, but sort of a hint that some time may have passed between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you talk with the spirit of the Lord hovering over the face of the waters. So there was water. At that point, there was earth. There was heavens, which is the word that they used for the universe. They didn't have a word for universe. So in the Old Testament, when they use the word heavens, they really mean all the known universe. So in the beginning bang, God created the heavens and earth. Then you go on and he starts ordering creation day on the, on the days. On the first day, he said, let there be light. And then, you know, you can go through the, the days of creation. So, but the, the, if you read just from the verse one, it's all there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void and the spirit of the was so awesome. I love Genesis. The universe, okay, so the, what's that, that is about is the Big Bang. So the Big Bang is the beginning point. So if you, if you think of the universe like this, the Big Bang, and then ever since it happened, the universe is expanding, and it has been since all of time. Does that kind of help? So like the reason they look at it like a point, because it ha like there was nothing, then and it's doing this. So if you kind of watch that backwards, you're going to watch it collapse back into itself, back into nothing. In other words, it's not going to do this, you know? <laughs> no, the Big Bang was the event that started the universe expanding. And actually, it's really interesting if you go to Job and Isaiah, there are verses that talk about the universe expanding. Like, people think the Bible is so unscientific. The book of Job is the most scientific book in the whole Bible, and it was probably the first one written. Well, scientists predict that there'll be like a heat death. So eventually it'll run out of energy. <laughs> Don't worry, we're good. It's not going to happen at least for another, you know, 15 minutes or so. It's been <laughs> but the universe will eventually run out of usable energy and it will die. It, it's, it's not going to go eternally. But we know how it ends, right? We're, we're Jesus followers. We know how it's all going to end. 
and it probably won't happen today. So <laughs> we have time for one more question. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I, okay, I was not a huge fan of God's Not Dead. I'm just going to be honest. I know the apologetics in the movie was very good. But what, kind of, what I kind of was like, uh, about it was that you've got this kid who's got this brilliant atheist philosopher and he like studies apologetics for a week and then like owns the guy and you know, that's never gonna happen. If you guys go to college, do not argue with your philosophy professor. You will not win. You know, you know I was, when we did Atheist Amy, none of you could have won. You know why? Because Atheist Amy had the floor. If I was a Christian doing that to a group of atheists, I would own the floor. You never, never argue with the person who owns the floor because you're not going to win. So the key is to ask your questions. What are your questions? What do you mean by that? So, but you only have to do that if the professor calls you out, right? Because if you don't make a truth claim, you don't have to defend it. So if, I, if I'm the professor and I say, hey, you're a Christian. Why do you believe such and such? And such? Well, he never said anything like that. So he could just say, well, actually, I didn't make any claims, but I just have a question about what you believe. Then you can turn it back, but don't, don't do what he did in God's Not Dead. But I did, um, I haven't seen God, God's Not Dead 2, but one of my teachers, one of my mentors was in the movie. Who saw God's Not Dead 2? Okay, you know the guy that was the expert witness on the resurrection, Jay Werner Wallace? He's one of my mentors, so I thought that was pretty cool that he was in that movie, so... All right, that's all the time I have for me, but you know, feel free to ask questions after, so. So we have a little housekeeping.